Well, I think most of you know me, um, but my name is Abby Stalker, and I'm a partner here at Lettered Streets uh, Covenant Church. Now, last time I preached, Michelle Majors introduced me, and because most of you know me, she called my mom for some fun facts. You might remember the hoop skirt phase fun fact. Uh, Michelle is downstairs tonight, but I was under strict instructions to call my dad for some fun facts instead. No, Michelle is right here. Do you want to come read this? Because, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, Michelle put me up to uh, calling my dad. My dad wanted you to know, Michelle, that he helped create the first set of fun facts. Um, but he has two more for you. First of all, he calls me the lucky lady because I was born on Friday the 13th. Second, and I didn't know this one, uh, he wanted to name me Abigail, partly because when he was growing up, he read a lot of Dear Abby, so I'm partly named after Abigail Van Buren. Um, and he thinks it's just a delightful coincidence that I also grew up to be kind of a writer, words person, just like her. So there you go, two new things about me. <laughs> Well, it is a joy and a privilege to be sharing the Word of God with you today. Before we dive in, I wanted to mention I'll mostly be using the message translation as I preach. So if you want a copy of the NIV for reference, might be nice, um, there's copies at the back. If you raised your hand right now, the ushers might bring you one. Um, so, but feel free to grab one if you'd like a copy to reference. Let's pray to open our time. Abba God, I thank you for giving us your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I recently convinced Lori Louise and Jamie to read one of my very favorite young adult fantasy series called The Queen's Thief. In the fourth book, the main character, Sophos, is the rightful heir to the throne. Now, Sophos has always doubted his own ability to be king, and he's let other people dictate his life as they mold him into the kind of person that they think the future king should be. That is, until rebels kidnap Sophos and sell him into slavery. Ironically, as a slave, he thinks he's found freedom. Freedom from all of the expectations of someone with a future full of responsibility. However, after months of being incognito, Sophos has an opportunity to escape, and he's suddenly faced with a choice. I don't see Lori, Louise, and Jamie here, but I won't share any spoilers. You should read, you should read the books. <laughs> but as he's making this choice to either reveal himself as the rightful heir to the throne and reclaim his future, or to remain a slave, he realizes that for the first time maybe ever, he has the freedom to choose. But he has to live with his choice. Freedom is a gift. True freedom is a gift but it also comes laden with responsibility. Our scripture today also talks about freedom and responsibility. In this passage, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. Now, scholars think that this is one of Paul's very earliest letters. 
And thus it gives us a window into the questions and concerns that the very earliest Christians were wrestling with. This letter was likely a circular letter. So what that means is that Paul wrote it to be passed around to all the churches in a particular region. It would be like if the Evangelical Covenant Church office, uh, for instance, set a newsletter around to all the covenant churches in Western Washington, say, which they do. Um, maybe they'd be addressing things like current events and how to respond to them, or just saying, hi, Lettered Streets Covenant Church, we saw you moved into a new building, everybody pray for them. Hi, Bellingham Covenant Church, you know, we uh, see the good things you're doing for the gospel, calling out different names of people that they might, um, might know and want to say hello to, teaching them about doctrine, addressing current events, that kind of stuff. In Galatians, Paul is writing to churches mostly composed of Gentile believers, so those are people who hadn't grown up Jewish, but had come to faith in God. Like our Evangelical Covenant Church newsletter, Paul is writing to all the churches in the region because he's heard that they're be being swayed by some teachers whose doctrine Paul finds very alarming. And so he writes to straighten out their thinking and to help them regain clarity about what it means to follow Jesus. Paul calls these teachers Judaizers, and it's because the main thing they were pushing was that Jewish law was the right way to follow Jesus. They taught that all believers in Jesus needed to be circumcised in order to truly be part of God's people, just like the Jewish people had been. Now, when Paul is responding and pushing back against the Judaizers, he isn't saying that the God of the Old Testament is one to abandon or that the Old Testament wasn't true. He's saying that Jesus is deeply, fundamentally, vividly, the fullest expression of everything that God is in the Old Testament and who God's people are supposed to be. Jesus changes everything. Now, up to this point in the letter, we're uh, diving into the second half of chapter two. So in chapters one and the beginning of chapter two, Paul is defending his apostleship. Basically, he's arguing that he's been given authority by Jesus to teach and guide the Galatian believers. He builds on this by telling the story of a conflict he had with Peter over Old Testament laws about food. The gist is that Paul called out Peter for hypocrisy. To cap off that story, in our passage today, Paul is going to summarize the gospel. After this, he's going to defend the gospel against the Judaizers, and then at the end of Galatians, he works out the implications for what it means about their life and their freedom in Christ, which is where he gets to great stuff like the fruits of the Spirit, passages you probably know pretty well. But for today, let's look at how he summarizes the heart of everything he's saying. So this is Galatians 2, 14 through 21. And I'm reading from the message because I think, um, I think it captures some of the vehemence of Paul's language in a way that will sound uh, recognizable to us in the, in the language we speak today. Uh, so this is Paul speaking first person. When I saw that they were not maintaining a steady, straight course according to the message, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, a Jew, 
Live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem. What right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? We Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it, and we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right by God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me, who go through Christ in order to get things right with God, aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan. Now, what actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a law man so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to the old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. Those are very strong words. Let's walk through that passage a bit at a time, looking at Paul's main points. First, he goes over the story of his confrontation with Peter, and he hones in on the main issue at the heart of their conflict, namely, the way that followers of Jesus should think about the Old Testament law. Paul says that they were looking at the food laws and really honing in on those, but then some of the Jewish followers of Jesus weren't following the food laws anyway. Peter's reminding them that Jesus sets them free from those laws. In a similar way, circumcision was also a distinct and important reminder for God's people that they were, well, his people. The Judaizers are telling the Galatians that they have to be circumcised. And their reasons could have been nefarious and manipulative for that teaching, but it could also have stemmed from an honest and earnest impulse to follow God to the best of their ability. For hundreds of years, the law had been the way that God's people followed him and that they showed that they were distinct from the people around them. 
Now, Paul doesn't say that the law served no purpose. He doesn't say that the law was illegitimate, illegitimate or not from God. Instead, he compares the law to a Greek word, a pedagogos. In the ancient world, a pedagogos was a servant who would have accompanied children to school and back home again. So they were responsible for the child, but only until the child was grown or of age. Some translations use the word teacher to translate that word, but it's more like a sophisticated babysitter. Paul is saying that the law was like a pedagogos. It wouldn't make sense for a grown, independent adult to be under the supervision of a babysitter if they, if they were grown up. And in the same way, it doesn't make sense for followers of Jesus to carry on following every detail of the law just because a fuller, more mature way of being God's people came with Jesus. And so this is no small matter for Paul. It's like, it's very important. He uses very strong language. It is important that we understand the implications because it's at the heart of understanding that Christ died for us and therefore sets us free. Paul goes so far as to say that if we fall into rule keeping, just like before Jesus came, then we repudiate God's grace and that if a living relationship with God could come by rule keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. And that's what, a, what is at the heart of this too. Paul sees and he believes with a fire in his bones that Jesus is an alive and exciting and transformative development in the history of God and the way he relates to his people. When Jesus came, it was a plot twist that no one saw coming, but it's the kind of plot twist that makes a good story an excellent and astonishing and life-changing one. Jesus came to give us fullness of life to invite us to be right at the forefront of God's kingdom breaking into this world. And Paul wants other followers of Jesus to have that fullness of life too. He doesn't want the Galatians or us to be constrained by limitations that we put on ourselves and that don't come from God. The way we get in on Jesus's life is faith. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working in love. This passage, this message that Paul is preaching is the hinge in the letter, transitioning from defending his authority as a true apostle of Jesus to his discussion of what the gospel of Jesus means. So we'll also turn to that, so what, now. This text calls us to keep focused on Christ to have our lives fully identified with Jesus. But what does that mean <laughs> to be part of that new creation? Well, it's a major theme throughout the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul. This idea that Christ's death and resurrection have inaugurated a new creation. Emily was just talking about that in the prayer. When Paul says that he has been crucified with Christ, the verb tense he uses implies that it's an ongoing event. His being crucified with Christ is something he continues to participate in. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection was a historical event, but it also kicked off a new creation that continues to fill the world and our lives. So since this is a major emphasis, a major theme that comes up um, throughout the New Testament, 
I often find myself asking when I read the New Testament, what is this passage showing me about that new creation? How does this passage help me glimpse Christ living in my life and in the world around me? Especially when I don't feel like that's true most of the time. <laughs> my life in this world can feel so broken. Well, as I reflected on this particular passage, I've found myself compelled to look for ways that Christ is breaking through ordinary life and to kind of flip the question around. Rather than asking where Christ is, instead, like he might not be present and working in us, instead asking what seems ordinary but is actually extraordinary because it is filled with Christ's transformation and his life. It, uh, it reminds me of when I moved to Bellingham from the Midwest, which I come from the area of the Midwest that has some hills, but it's nothing compared to the Cascade Mountains. And so when I moved here, I was constantly amazed to see the mountains. I felt like every time I was driving around and I'd catch a glimpse of the mountains, I'd be like, there's mountains right there, can you believe it? But after living here for almost a decade, you get used to them, sort of, at some point. But every so often I'll be going about my day and suddenly I catch a glimpse of the mountains and they strike me afresh. I really see them again. They're amazing and they're beautiful and they're right there. But not only that, not only do they have the capacity to fill us with awe, but they also really affect the place that we live. They influence the weather and the kinds of plants and animals that live here and the kinds of activities we can do in our spare time. If I want to see the place that I live and really, really see it, really understand it, I need to see the mountains, not just because they're beautiful, but because they influence everything around them. It's kind of like that with Christ transforming our lives. For instance, it can feel ordinary that all of this that we're doing today, all of us from our different backgrounds, we get to gather freely to worship God. It feels ordinary that I get to open his word and read it for myself in my own language. But all of that's amazing. That's a gift. We live in an age where literacy education is available, even for someone like me who's like a non-upper-class woman. Like, that wasn't true in history. You guys know that. <laughs> we get to read the Bible in the Word of God, in our own language. We don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew unless we want to. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Have you considered that any time you're reading and hearing the Word of God and like a connection forms or you notice something new, your heart is strangely warmed. I mean, that's cool, but it's also the spirit moving in and through you. It's not just ordinary, it's extraordinary. Of course, his kingdom comes in dramatic ways sometimes. And that can be an encouragement because it's so unignorable. But if you, like me, don't feel like you have a dramatic conversion story or just feel like this new life, Christ living in me language, doesn't really resonate with the mundane every day of your life, well, I pray that all of us would be able to flip the question to see Christ the extraordinary in the midst of what seems ordinary to us. Keeping focused on Christ also means not letting our focus drift and fixate instead on keeping the rules. Sometimes that's called legalism and it makes sense in a way, if we can figure out what things are pleasing to God, 
then we can do them. And then we'll be good, right? If we aren't sure who's in or who's out, kind of in our church community or in the world more generally, if we can't figure out who we can trust, if we follow the rules and they follow the rules, then we know they're vetted, they're good. But we all know that's not always how it works. For the Galatian church, the main rule that they were worried about whether or not to follow was circumcision. It obviously looks different for us in this time and place, but we can still fall into legalism. We don't have to come from that background in order to create other rules for ourselves. We can make rules over things that might be better left to personal conscience because rules let us keep control. Now, a rule could look like whether or not you're allowed to drink alcohol. Some groups have made this a major prohibition for Jesus followers. On the other hand, somewhere like Bellingham, that can feel unheard of for people. But it's a rule that if someone feels like that's a barrier to their following Jesus, don't, don't, worry about, don't worry about that piece of the culture. If it's something that's not a stumbling block in a relationship with Jesus, it should be fine for you to partake. And I'm sure there's so many examples of this. I'm sure you can think of other things, um, whether it's the purity culture of the 2000s or like so many things around social media use or not use. There's all kinds of things we make into rules that can be pretty subtle for ourselves. It can look like sacrificing our relationship with God for other ways of trying to kind of uh, create a system. For instance, we might insist on seeing a sign or insisting that I just need to let go and let God kind of dictate my steps in order to confirm that something is God's will before we make a decision. But that can almost lead into treating God like a sort of magic system where you just kind of ask questions and he gives you answers. It robs us of our agency to fully engage in following him. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek the will of God, of course. All of this, all of this freedom talk is very, it's not black and white. <laughs> but we want to assume, like God does, that God wants us to grow and learn and be in relationship with him as we seek to do his will. Not that his main priority is for us to get things right, absolutely right, the first time. God gives us freedom to think and engage and take responsibility for our choices, to be involved in the work he's doing in the world. When we treat him like he's distant or like we just need to be puppets in order to follow him, that's not true freedom in Christ. It's not the picture that Paul is painting. And Paul spends a lot of time coming back to this idea of freedom. As he said in our passage today, freedom doesn't mean that we should just do whatever we want, especially and including sin, in order to give Christ more of an opportunity to work in us. Sin takes our eyes off Christ. As Paul says later in Galatians, it is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy that freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. 
We can try to pretend that freedom comes from letting our rules or our desires dictate our choices. And that might help us cope with stress sometimes, but Paul is urging us to live fully into our freedom, to accept our responsibility for our lives, and to trust that Christ's forgiveness and salvation are enough to overcome our inevitable mix-ups and failures. Freedom also means being people of integrity, to be in our actions the kind of people that we say we are. Again, this passage is urging us on to Jesus, not urging us to go look for other systems to give our lives meaning. So if we're followers of Jesus, that means we should be seeking to have our lives reflect his example. Later in Galatians, Paul says that a life focused on Christ and filled with his spirit will bear certain kinds of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the kinds of things that mark a life headed in Christ's direction. They're also ways of loving our neighbors, of love being concrete and specific and real, rather than being abstract. As Paul says in Galatians 5, we are called to be free, but we are to serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's quoting Leviticus 19 there. Jesus quotes that verse too. They're showing by example that we shouldn't toss out the Old Testament law, but that how we respond to it changes because of Jesus. And it's a good reminder that when we ask what it means to have faith, we can learn from the whole story of God in all of scripture. Following Jesus means remembering I'm part of the people of God, Lettered Streets Covenant Church, but also the people of God throughout history, and seeking to know him through that story. For example, as Nancy reminded us last week, uh, God spoke through his prophet Habakkuk to remind his people that he is good all the time, and all the time he is good. He is a God of justice and mercy, and he cares for us. Bridget will teach in the coming weeks about the story of God and his people in the book of Esther. Christy's going to preach on the book of Proverbs later. Like, this Old Testament stuff is important, you guys, so be paying attention. <laughs> we meet God and we get to know him in his word, the story of him and his people, and in the sacraments, like communion, where we gather as the body of Christ. So... Sisters and brothers, may this word challenge and encourage you. The life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. He sets us free to love and care for the world. Live into that calling. Amen. <laughs>